Last week, I think I kind of had you drinking out of a fire hose. Um, I feel like what happened last week was there was so much information to go through in this series, and I didn't want it to last so long, so I decided we would just cram a lot of information in one night. And I could tell by the looks on some of your faces that it was probably too much information, too fast. I saw Megan sitting in the back whose mouth was open half the time, like, you know, like, you're really doing this? Especially after I go, let's take a break, and then Jeremy and I will continue. She's like, you're kidding me. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, I can't believe you're really going to do that. So we are going through some things right now. We've been going through some of the stuff about transmission of the scriptures. Tonight, we're focusing on the New Testament transmission. In English, that just means how did those manuscripts get copied over time to end up in our hands? That's all we're going to talk about. Uh, probably better than trying to cram a lot of information down your throats. It'll also give us time to sort through and see what questions are still coming up that we can address better, okay? I also told you that I would raise some books that you could follow along. So far in the series, just for the first couple of weeks, we've covered about two books worth of material. So I'm going to recommend this book called The Origin of the Bible. It's written by a number of people. It's actually a bunch of essays. Each person is writing a chapter on a different topic. I like this book. Uh, it's repetitive. There's redundant material because each person is writing some different chapter and they overlap. But the redundancy is helpful because it reminds you of things because there's so much information that when you hear different authors talk about the same thing, you go, oh, yeah, I remember that now. Oh, yeah, that, that other guy talked about that. That's important. I see how they interconnect. For those of you who are interested in getting a general overview of many of the topics we're going to cover, this is probably a good one to pick up. Here's another one that I recommend that goes much deeper into the subject of the canonicity of Scripture. It's actually called the Canon of Scripture. It's by F.F. F. Bruce, who's probably one of the foremost authorities and has spent most of his life just working on issues of the canon. So you can spend time with that book if you want. We're going to go through others, and I'll raise them as we go into them. These are just the ones that we've been covering for the last couple of weeks, in case you want to read them. But if you're going to get one so far, I probably would pick The Origin of the Bible, especially since a lot of Bruce's work has kind of been reproduced in summary form in The Origin of the Bible, since he's one of the contributing people there. Okay? So I promise I would tell you where we're kind of going with that, so you can write them down. So what did we do last week? Last week, if I could summarize it in a sentence, it's probably this that the canon of the Old Testament was pretty much accepted as is because Jesus seemed to accept it. So we didn't have a lot of work to do there. The real work was mostly trying to figure out what was the Old Testament by the time he was giving it weight. So we talked about that last week. I'll leave it there. Let me press forward tonight and talk about the transmission of the New Testament. And I'm specifically focusing only on transmission. So we're going to look at just how we know that the words you have in your Bible are anything close to what was originally written. That's the subject tonight. So let's go through some background to set up why this is even an issue. The first thing is, generally speaking, in the Hebrew tradition, people felt that the oral word, the oral tradition, seemed to be more reliable That was the preference it was given. In fact, as many of you know, if you were studying the scriptures, you would memorize large parts of them. Some would memorize the entire scripture. But at least you were going to memorize the first five books of the Bible. And you took very special care that there was going to be no missing parts of the oral transmission. 
So you paid attention to accuracy very carefully, and it was this oral tradition that was thought to be more reliable. By the time we get to the writings in the New Testament, we're writing in a different tradition, a different time. Now we're looking at kind of more of the Greek tradition. And there, it seemed like the written word was more highly valued than the oral word. It seemed that most people preferred putting things in writing, and what was in writing was trusted more. So we're going to be looking at how those writings happen. That's a little bit of background. Second, Jesus didn't leave us any writings. So as some of you have commented before, even the words of Jesus, when we say the words of Jesus, and your Bible might have the words of Jesus in red, some of you have brought up either the observation or for sometimes it might have been even a critique. Well, we don't really even know that those are Jesus' words. Those are just what somebody recorded Jesus as saying. That's a valid point to bring up. We might have to deal with that. But we know he didn't leave any writings of his own. He didn't write any books. And finally, another thing by way of background, is the sayings of Jesus were pretty cherished. They were being used by the disciples, and they'd been circulating probably before any writing took place. I put up here, by the way, as an example, there's the theory that involves the source Q. We may go into that a little bit more later, but just so you know what it is, if you hear this Q theory, the word Q comes from a German word, quell, which is meanings the source, and the theory is this. When you look at the order in which the Gospels were written, most scholars think Mark was written first. They look at Matthew and they look at Luke, who seem to have borrowed a lot of information from Mark, but they also seem to have been very close or almost identical in many verses with stuff that's not found in Mark. And people believe that there was a group of sayings, whether orally transmitted or in writing, that were circulating around the time they were writing their Gospels, and they may have used those as a source. When we come back to inspiration, we might talk about what that means. But there's at least a large number of scholars who are not bothered by the idea, that's the best way to state it, they're not bothered by the idea that Matthew and Luke, when they were writing, were probably relying quite a bit on Mark, and this unknown source, whether it was oral or written, there seemed to be at least Jesus' sayings. And that would make sense because the disciples thought so much of Jesus' sayings, they were already circulating immediately as the church begins. And so it seems like those other gospel writers would have access to them. Philip? This is more of a curiosity in the Hebrew tradition that oral transmission was often trusted more than written transmission. Yeah, no, actually, this to us is inconceivable. The best way to do it is to have someone recite word for word, the memorized oral tradition of certain books and have other people listening in and actually checking to do that. That's part of your training. By the time we get to the first century, and especially in our century, that, that, that's inconceivable. Most of us can't even cite a few verses without screwing up the words, if we know any at all. Uh, you go back 30 years, there was whole emphases in our churches to memorize scripture, but that was like, you know, like this much compared to the actual scriptures. So... For us, that wouldn't make any sense. We'd say, you've got to rely on this. People debate at what point the writings were actually done, but nobody seems to debate that even as you get to the first century and beyond, that in many rabbinical schools, people were still doing that in the Hebrew tradition. Yeah. It should be noted also that later in the uh, 6th century during uh, Islam, that that tradition still went on there, that oral tradition. 
and according to the tradition, the Quran wasn't written for a hundred years after Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad had, had died. So the idea is that there's a there is an interesting cultural phenomenon in that region, whether it's uh, Arabia, that Arabian area, and Jerusalem, that whole thing where there's a real strong oral tradition, and it continued on for some time. You know, I think this is very important for us to understand because there are going to be gaps. In, the tr in not just the transmission from the time we have manuscripts forward. There's just going to be gaps you're going to see in a moment from the time that Jesus spoke the words to the time they were written down. So you'd think, hey, if somebody said something yesterday, I'm not going to remember it, let alone 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years ago. But that's why I'm bringing up that it seems like the sayings and the teachings of Jesus were already in circulation. But that's saying a lot because the way they were being circulated was, gives us still some pretty high confidence because they had a better capacity than we did to transmit things orally and have them remain accurate. Remember, all of Jesus' early followers were Jewish. They followed the Jewish tradition of being able to handle this kind of oral repetition without losing it. In our context, you play a game of telephone, I guarantee it, we could try it just for fun. If I started with Randy, by the time we end up over here, I don't know what we're going to end up with. But this was a much more serious thing that they took, and they were able to do it. Let me, let me go to the next thing here, just a little bit more background. I talked about the order of the books. Just to give you a, an idea, and this is an idea because almost every book, and I said we're not going to go into dating controversies in this series, but just so you get an idea, the books are not written, of course, in the order in which they come in the New Testament. The New Testament was organized in a subject matter context. So you have the Gospels, and you have Acts, and you have the Pauline epistles, usually in order of the length. And then you have some of the other epistles leading up to Revelation at the end. So in terms of the writing, though, scholars differ to some degree. But again, the whole period of time we're talking about is about 45, 50 years at the most. But you can see they think, for example, James was first, or Galatians is maybe number two. See first and second Thessalonians, and then there is Mark. They believe that it was written before Matthew. You got first and second Corinthians, Romans, then Luke, Acts, Colossians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians and Philemon, First Peter, First Timothy, Titus, Hebrew, Second Peter, Second Timothy, Jude, John, first and second, third John, Revelation. That's kind of the order they think. But you can see that James is written about forty five to forty nine. And if you take the position that Jesus died around thirty the common era, you can see that the first books are already being written within about 15 to 20 years later. And we also know that before they were even written down, forgetting the sources that I was talking about, like the sayings of Jesus or the teachings, for example, in, later on in Colossians or even in 1 Corinthians and many other of the Pauline epistles, he's actually quoting hymns that have already been moving around through the church that they kind of already know. So people are already starting to formulate informal creeds and hymns and doctrinal statements even before some of these things are being written. We're talking about a very short period of time for people who are comfortable with an oral tradition. But notice it's being written in Greek, and that's why careful attention is being paid to the fact that they should be put in writing because of that kind of crossover that we have of those two traditions. A tradition that, you know, a, a church that begins among the Hebrews, but is quickly moving out among the Gentiles who are more comfortable with the written word. Yeah. Oh, just a question. Um, I mean, 15 years, I, I realized, and historically, is not a very long period of time, but 
I mean, for me at least, like if I was writing about something that happened 15 years ago, I don't know, it seems like there should be something, if it was that big, I would want to write about it now. You know, is there a reason that there's like that period? Are we missing stuff? Well, if we're missing stuff, it would be those early collections of either sayings or teachings. One of the reasons it's difficult to say that they were written down is because no one's ever found a fragment of any of them, while we found fragments of other things. Like, it's kind of curious that we've never found a fragment, and I'll critique that statement in a moment. But I really don't know the reason it took a while. I don't have a good answer for why, let's say, James is writing that much later. I've heard once, but I don't know like, how valid it is as an answer for that. Um, is what I guess it sort of fits a little bit with some of the gospel writings is that most of the people during that time didn't expect to be alive their whole life, or like like that Jesus is going to come back during their lifetime, so they don't need to write stuff down, like to for other people past their generation, because they why would they care? There was only them, and that was going to be it. Yeah, I think that might be a good explanation. I think another one is probably that. Maybe they were just following Jesus' example. I mean, he didn't write anything down, and they were continuing his teachings exactly the same way that he did. What that means is as the, as the apostles themselves started to age a little bit, I think some people started taking more seriously the stuff that was written. You've got to remember that Mark, Matthew, like books like that, they are, are kind of starting to be written to different audiences. So the need for the gospel message to be written down and communicated starts to come out, I believe. Like the way that, that, you know, that Mark, I think, is writing to the Roman audience, I believe, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Or the way that John, much later, writes a more reflective theological gospel, because I think there's a need for it at that point. Uh, 15 years, 20 years might not be that long if you take a view that the Hebrew Bible was really not written down for centuries. You know, the fact that, that these texts were at some point put into written form so quickly, and, and compared to the, the, the way that it was done in the past, maybe more of an indication of the culture they were living in as well, and the fact that they were in a Greek-speaking world and in the Roman Empire, and that 15 years may seem like a long time to us, but you know, as Jewish men, and whether or not there was any need to or any urge to do that may have been more of a function of the culture that they found themselves in at the time. Yeah, and I think historically, the early church was kind of centered in Jerusalem. As Paul begins his missionary journeys and starts to plant churches among the Gentiles, there's a little bit of a struggle, and we read about it in Galatians. We know about it in other places. There's a little bit of a struggle, as we see in Acts, between what are we going to do with Gentile Christians? How do we deal with them? But once those churches are established, now there's actually a need to write to them, which is what Paul is doing. So some of it is just historical. Like, there was no need to write some of these letters until there were churches established that he couldn't get to personally that he had to correct or teach or send some messages to. Uh, I think the same is true kind of with the gospel messages, by the way. Once those churches are out there, you start to see that Luke is writing to one audience, Matthew's writing to another audience. We're trying to reach some of these people. Okay. All right, so you can see the dating. By the way, I put an asterisk up there. I had to because I'm not saying that these are the accurate dates. These are just a list of reliable dates. But as always, I put an asterisk. There it is. No purchase necessary. Actual results may vary. Check local listings. Not valid in all states. It must be 18 to play. Because <laughs> I don't want to say that those are authoritative, but good sources attribute them in that order. You know, again, we're talking about a swing of about 45 years. It's not a long period of time that these books were being written. 
Okay, let's move forward and give you some more info. From the very beginning, it seems that we have some indication that these books, as they capture Jesus' words, are being looked at in the lens of Scripture. Very early on, for example, I've cited 1 Timothy 5.18. Notice here that Paul is saying, For the Scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And he's citing Deuteronomy 25.4 there. And he cites, The worker deserves his wages, which is a quote from Luke. That's Luke 10.7. So it seems like even Paul is attributing both as Scripture within one of his epistles. We're starting to get clues that he believes that these words have the same weight as the Old Testament Scripture. Paul's letters are, by inference, referred to as Scripture. This is 2 Peter 3.15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Now, here's one of the most obvious statements in the whole Bible. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. The writer of 2 Peter is putting these two together by inference. The way that he writes as they do other scriptures intimates that he believes that Paul's letters which were very likely already traveling around as a collection of some, if not all, of his letters to the different churches, are under the category of other scripture. So we're getting the clue that already people are looking at this within a very short time. I mean, this is Second Peter. If we go back, say it's written about 66. So we're talking about 36, say 40 years. We're very close that the already the idea that whatever is being contained, both Jesus' words as they're captured and maybe some of Paul's words, have the force of Scripture. The early church fathers, I'll just run through some of these real fast. Clement of Rome, he quotes Jesus' words and uses the phrase, the Holy Spirit says, and then quotes a number of his sayings from Matthew. And he's quoting, it appears, from the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount specifically. Ignatius, oh, by the way, that was... In 96, so we haven't even crossed the line into the second century yet, still in the first century. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, around 110, answers in the affirmative the question, is the gospel scripture? And begins to sum up the authority of Jesus Christ and his sayings, that they have the weight of scripture. The epistle of Barnabas, which is found around 130, starts using the word, it is written, and starts quoting New Testament texts. So again, that it is written very akin to the Old Testament it is written, or when people cite the Old Testament by saying, for it is written, they would use the same reference to the New Testament. And here's a couple other guys. Polycarp, which is the Bishop of Smyrna, that's 110, 120, and Dionysus, Bishop of Corinth, around 170 in the Common Era. This doesn't establish anything except that the church believed that they were authoritative. They believed already by this point that these had the weight of Scripture. The canon was still coming together, and we'll deal with that later. But that these things from early on, they already took it seriously. That's the point that I think we need to know. A lot of us have the idea maybe that it took maybe three or 400 years for them to decide, hey, let's put that Bible together, and let's see what it has in it. But from the very first century, 
within 20, 30 years, people already had a clue that we should take this with the same authority as Scripture and treat it very seriously. That gives us some confidence that the way it was transmitted and copied would have been a little bit more careful than some critics might say. So how did those words get into your Bible? What's the closest things we have? The oldest manuscript that we have surviving is a manuscript called P52. It's a part of John 18, and it dates back to 110, somewhere between 110 and 125, the Common Era. Okay, let's say that his book was written around 90. So somewhere between 20 to 35 years later, that's the oldest surviving manuscript we have. We have these fragments. That's the closest we come to an actual original. And it's just a fragment. It's probably about 10 verses or so. Here's some others that we found. The Chester Beatty papyri were found. They were like a collection that he purchased. So just to get an idea about how close we come to some of these things, P46 is all of Paul's epistles in Hebrews. goes to the late 1st century or early 2nd century. We have them all, all of Paul's epistles. P45 contains portions of all four Gospels and Acts. That's dated to the 2nd century. And P47 has portions of Revelations, chapters 19 to 17 in the 3rd century. So we're getting a little bit further away. Those are the oldest surviving things that we have in our possession. doesn't mean they were the oldest surviving ones they ever had. Just things didn't make it to our time. There are some papyri purchased by Bodmer, named after him. P66, most of John, by around 175. All of 1st and 2nd Peter and Jude, that's a 3rd century one. And large portions of Luke and John, again, in the 3rd century, but sorry, around 200. Like, egghead scholars love this stuff. Look, they even give them a little thing, like P46, P45. Like, they have a code all their own, you know? Like, they could stand around and go to conferences and go, well, I've been looking at P47. Like, some people are supposed to know what that means, right? What's the oldest complete copy we have? It would be Codex Synacticus. It was found in the Sinai. They gave it the initial Aleph, or the Hebrew Aleph there. So when you're reading books, they just don't want to spell out Codex Synacticus and waste ink. So to confuse all the non-theologians, they just put the little Hebrew letter for Aleph. The rest of us have to go look it up and find out what the heck they're talking about. Codex Synacticus was discovered in the 19th century by Constantine von Tischendorf, and he found it in a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. He found it in the St. Catherine's Monastery, and it had been there. Now, remember, I told you that a codex is the first instance of things being bound almost like in a book form, and that goes back to 350 A.D. That's the closest we have, the oldest one we have that's complete. Yeah. What do you mean by complete? Is it Since I know we talked about like the different canons and... Yeah, this one has almost everything of the 27 books of the New Testament. There are a couple pages missing. There are some pages missing that they can't find, but they can tell that there's actual pages missing as opposed to, like, the book doesn't contain those. Are there other books in there that doesn't include it in our canon? No. They're, they're purely the 27 books of the New Testament as we have them. And this is in Greek. And last week I showed you a picture of it. And you can see that Christians were among the first to use this codex format. Everybody else was using scrolls. You can actually search the entire book. If you go to codexsynacticus.org, they actually have taken pictures of every page they have. They have the actual Greek on one side. They translate it into English somewhere else for you. 
And it's housed right now in four different libraries in Britain, Russia, Germany, and one other place has copies of it. I just blanked. Oh, yeah, at the original monastery. They kept some of the pages. But online, all the pages are assembled, and you can go through it and search and see the differences, for example, from the literal translation. Somebody's, of course, done a translation into English. You can compare it to what's in your scriptures. Yeah. If our oldest fragments are at the end of the first century, early second century, why do the scholars date it at 50s and 60s? Like, what evidence is there? You know, like, if they have no evidence, why do they put it there and not later or before? Because the dating is usually not based on the manuscript evidence. The dating is based on what's going on in the story itself. So, like, for example, we know what Paul was doing in the book of Galatians. Like, we know what he's talking about. He's dealing with certain issues. And he actually references, for example, like, when I went to Jerusalem and I spoke to those people. Like, then you go to the book of Acts and you realize, like, when approximately was that? So we can start to date the book. Like, is it before the Council of Jerusalem? Is it right after? So we kind of start to lay things down. Paul does actually give us quite a bit of easy dating in some places. In other places, it's, we're not too sure. But, but certainly, if you have people citing those things, which you start to do by the beginning of the second century, you know that all of them were written before. And we start to see citations in the letters written by these various bishops back and forth from the different churches, citing the scriptures so you know, well, that clearly was written before. So even if you have some dating controversy between around like 40 all the way to like 90, 95, it's pretty much done by that period. The only question is, which order are they there? But we're not going to get past the first century in most of the books. Maybe some people have said John goes to like 110, but it doesn't seem likely because they're already citing him. So he's, his gospel must have gotten out earlier than that. Yeah? On, the, on that manuscript, there, were like, there was stuff on the bottom and things on the sides. What is that? Some of them have corrections. You see over here, it looks like they actually have a correction. Codex Synacticus actually has somebody who wrote in corrections on it, and it was explained in more detail on the site. Some scribes actually added some things like margin notes and some corrections and tried to correct grammar or add harmonization and stuff in different places. And I think that's noted. So again, it's not like we get this pristine copy all the time because it's, nobody ever thought, well, this is going to be the one that everybody relies on. You know, there was just one copy that happened to survive in this monastery because one of the things that happened with the Greek New Testament is as the church spreads into Rome and the Western church becomes the dominant church, everything's in Latin. You know, they're all following the Latin text, which was just a translation of the Greek. So it was always secondary. But still, less and less Greek manuscripts survive because it, only the church in the east, in Byzantium, basically, in those places, like maybe even in Palestine and in Greece, of course, were still using the Greek text. But it was always the most accurate because that was the language it was originally written in. You know, so when we find these things, it's like a huge find because you know, we have lots of Latin. The Greek ones were harder to come by. This sounds like not that exciting, but it's going to come back to us when we deal with what version of the Bible do you want to use because it depends on what text you're following. There is a significant break that happens with the King James and the rest of the English translations over what text are they going to use as their underlying text. The other one, Codex Vaticanus. As you can guess, this one was hidden at the Vatican for a long time. Not sure exactly when it was found. I think it was around 1480-something. It was actually found and kept in the Vatican archives until the 19th century. They finally then allowed scholars to look at it. It's just slightly older than the other one. But again, it contains the entire Old Testament and New Testament. This time we got even more confirmation of what was being used in the church this time. The only thing that's just missing, and I don't know if it excluded them or it's just missing, but it clearly seems to be missing pages, which is from Hebrews 9 to the end 
of the New Testament were missing, or maybe some of those books weren't included, but most likely they were missing. They just didn't have the end pages. That one's called B. You see people citing to B. That's what that looks like, kind of decorative. Codex Alexandrinus, from the Alexandrian tradition, found in Alexandria. That's called A. All right? That's early 5th century, again, the entire New Testament. And that's what that looks like. You can see, again, there's no spaces like we talked about. You just got to kind of follow along and know where to parse the words from one another. You know, and you have the little notes and on the side, the margins, maybe corrections, maybe help you pronunciation. I'm not exactly sure. It was common to actually just write the Greek without any spaces between the words. Notice this column format, too, that we've seen. This is relatively kind of an innovation of the church. They were among the first, actually, they were the first that we know of to use the codex. And for almost 100 years, they're exclusively the only ones using codexes or codices. But they also had this column format that was kind of common among these. But yeah, no spaces between the words. That's why you have to be careful when you're trying to translate it. You just make sure that you divide the words right. Most times it's obvious. Sometimes it's not as clear. Yes? And would they just, um, like, let's say that this one ended halfway, um, and it was the end of the John. Would Acts start right after that? or? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I would suspect they just went straight into it. Do you know? In some texts, I'm not sure if it's New Testament or Old Testament or Hebrew Scriptures, they would end it, they would, they would start the next sentence of the next book, and then repeat it. So you know that like, this is something that's different. There's a, there's a certain repetition that might happen, so you know there's a break. I'm going to look, but I presume that they didn't want to waste space, and the reason for that is they had to actually get this parchment, right? and get it ready, and then these columns were not easily made. Some people believe that they actually lined the columns, you know, the way we would use to line paper, you know, with a pencil first, and then you would write on it. They would actually kind of line the columns up with a, with a faint marking so that they could do this really nice, neat thing. We're going to talk about why that's important, the fact that it's nice, neat, and lined up. You have this other codex down here that they call C. It's Ephraimi Rescriptus, with all the Latin terminology. That's C. That's a 5th century. Most of the new... Testament. This one was recovered very interesting. It's a palimpsest, which is where somebody has taken an old papyrus and just erased it so they could write over it because they didn't want to just go get new stuff or make new stuff. So they just took an existing copy of the New Testament and just erased it basically and wrote new stuff on it. They wrote sermons on it. And through technology and all the stuff they were able to do very carefully, they're able to go underneath to see what the original text actually said first. And that's how we recovered C. So there you go. Next time you're at a party, you want to feel like a real egghead, you can start throwing out P76 and Aleph and B and A and C. And Here's the point. We have about 6,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament in Greek. Some of them are fragments. Some of them are more complete books. Some of them are complete chapters of books. Some of them are the complete New Testament. And you can see some of them include even the Old Testament. When you take all of those together, we have a very, very good idea of what the original looked like. Some books say 99%. I don't know where they got that. I don't know if anybody's done a mathematical analysis of it. But this point I found almost without exception, including among people who criticize a lot of this, that 
we basically have a fundamental understanding of everything that is in the New Testament scripts. That if there are differences even where there may be differences, and there are, we talked about last week about how things are copied, there may be differences. We don't have any trouble figuring out where the differences came from or the differences are on issues that are not fundamental to our faith. If a scribe was trying to harmonize something or delete something that was a little bit, they found that it was maybe a little bit offensive or they wanted to take out something that was problematic, it's very easy to tell when you have this many manuscripts. Just to give you a comparison, we have a high degree of certainty of what Homer's Iliad was like. It was transmitted for a long time, much longer period of time before it hit writing. We only have 650 manuscripts of that. That's, the, by the way, the closest any other Greek writing that we have is the Iliad, 650. So like only 10% of the number of manuscripts in our possession. Euripides, the tragedies, only 330 manuscripts. So to have 6,000 manuscripts in some form or another is helpful. Questions? Yeah. Uh, when was the canon like, decided? I'm just like, trying to figure out, was that sort of established before that first third century CE document that had the same canon? For the New or Old Testament? For the New Testament. For the New Testament, as we'll talk about in a couple weeks, by around 170, you already had people with a good idea of what was in the canon. It's not going to get the official stamp for a little bit longer. But already even the early heresies are not debating on which books to put in, but how to read them. Now, of course, you're going to have other heresies that add books, like the Gnostics and the early church heresies, like the very earliest church heresies, were debating the interpretation of a known set of books. In fact, a couple of the early heretics tried to make their own Bibles, and surprisingly, they only included books that would later be in the canon. Um, they weren't trying to add other things to win their case. It seemed like by the second century, people kind of knew what the parameters were, and then they felt later on, as more and more heresies were coming up, like, we really need to pronounce this because it seems like we're getting into trouble for not having it. Yeah? Um, just clarifying question. You're talking about how some are more complete, some are just fragments. Does that mean like a tiny little piece of paper that counts as one manuscript and like a whole like full chapter that also counts as one manuscript? That's correct. If we had a fragment that small, they would count that as a manuscript. Yeah, we have some like that I said, like that one from John that's only a few verses. Then we have some that are like a whole chapter. We have some that are a whole book. Then we have some, as we get a little bit later, that are actually the whole thing. But this is where we get to compare them. Like if you have that small fragment of John, and then you go to Codex Sinaiticus, you could say, okay, let's say this is 100 or 110, and this thing is 350, so we've got a space of 250 years, let's say. Is it the same? And if you look at them and you go, okay, at least that part checks. Then they go find another fragment where they have a chapter of Matthew, for example, whole chapter. And it's pretty early dated, somewhere in the second century. They'll look at that and they'll go, okay, let's compare that. All right? So you're building confidence. The more you're cross-checking, in places you might actually correct the later text, which is what we do. But the more you find that, hey, this transmission appears to be pretty good here, that gives you confidence that when we have this corpus of a whole text, like in these later codexes, that you could think that's good. And that's why most scholars would say, like, Codex Synacticus or Codex Vaticanus are about the best we have. Because they've been checked against a lot of manuscripts, but they're so complete, I feel like this is really trustworthy. 
I guess it just seems that the number seems a little maybe misleading or maybe a little like arbitrary given that they can be that different in size. Yeah, there's exactly 6,000, by the way. No, <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know what the number is. But yeah, you're right. It can be very small. But you see, people get excited over very small fragments. We said that last week when we were going to go look at the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit, right? I mean, people find very small fragments and they get really, really excited because it allows one more check. You know, you feel like, okay, I need to spot check this. I'm not going to look at every single thing, but whenever I find a new fragment and I get to look at what I've got over here, hey, that's, that's good. I think I was really surprised the first time I went and saw fragments because I was expecting, like, it yeah. was going to be, like, this big, and then it was... Yeah. By the way, one thing I haven't brought up that I should bring up, we actually have recovered a large part of our text, not from the manuscripts, but from the surviving letters that the church fathers were writing. For example, when Tertullian, who we're going to talk about later, is arguing against some of the early heresies, he's citing things. Other people are going to cite things to each other. We have sermons that cite from these things. So sometimes it wasn't the manuscripts that survived, but it was somebody's quotation of them. Now, I know we could say, well, how closely did they copy? But it's just one more touch point where you pull out their sermon that's quoted, and you go, let's look at what we have here in this codex and see, were they treating it very seriously? And if you feel that this guy on two or three occasions hit it right, then when you have other citations in their letters, you know, you can say, all right, we could trust those because they seem like they're copying very accurately. Yeah? Do they think that maybe not all, but some of the manuscripts recovered are copied from the originals? Or, uh, for instance, are, do they think that some of the newer ones, for instance, uh, A copied from B? I believe that they were found in different places and even at different times. So... We have them to compare against one another, which provides a good check, but there's no evidence they're actually copied. In fact, it looks like they're just copies of copies that might have had a common ancestor, but that's the closest they come. All right, here's another thing that gives us confidence. In Alexandria, the scribes took very seriously their scribal efforts. During the second and fourth century, they, way before we ever thought of this, were already trying to recover the original text. The Alexandrian scribes had started to collect manuscripts and sat down to try to figure out how close can we get to the original text. Unlike other schools of thought where they maybe copied more loosely, the Alexandrian scribes had been raised in a tradition to copy very accurately, so their first concern was trying to figure out what is the most accurate original. And they would collect manuscripts much the way we do. So in the Greek language, which is where those codexes come from, and many of them come from this Alexandrian tradition, like Codex, Synacticus, and Vaticanus both come from that Alexandrian tradition, which is very helpful to us. Because if we know that they also, centuries before we ever were around to do it ourselves, were trying to recover the original, that gives us more confidence in that those surviving codexes were probably as close as you could get. So they too were concerned. They weren't just thinking, ah, someday somebody will figure this out. Or these will all survive and they'll sort it out later. They were concerned at that time that already just a couple hundred years later that there already might be too many copies and they need to get down to the root of the issue. So, let's close kind of with this thought. So even if these books get written down and everybody copies them very, very accurately, the question remains, what about the period between the original writing and the first manuscripts? And I just showed you the Alexandrian tradition, but most critics of New Testament scholarship, this is what they'll say. Christians were just not that serious about copying the scriptures. Some people might even cite what Philip said. Well, they expected the Lord to come back. They weren't really thinking this was going to survive. Or these Christians, especially the Gentile Christians, they didn't follow the, the Hebrew tradition. They didn't care. 
their goal was just to get the message out any way they could. They weren't worried about accuracy. And I would just like to point out some things that scholars say that also give us some confidence as to why early Christians, despite the reputation given to them, I think maybe without too much support by some liberal scholars, on my research and looking at it, here's an explanation. I'll just offer it. It's not mine. But many middle-of-the-road scholars and conservative scholars kind of feel that Christians probably did take it seriously. Here's how they say we know. Early Christians did follow the Jewish scribal customs because most of the early Christians were Jewish. And if they believed that this was the weight of Scripture or they're starting to develop that idea very early on where they believed in the authority of Jesus to the degree that they would go and spread this message, they probably knew that it wasn't just another book they were copying. Second, these Christians understood the sacred nature of the text, so they were probably going to handle it with some care as they were communicating it. We saw that in the way that some of those earlier bishops were quoting Scripture. We see in many, many of the early papyri this nomina sacra. The best way to describe that is it's an abbreviation given to holy words in Scripture, like the abbreviation that's given to Yahweh in the Old Testament. We see that in many early copies, many early manuscripts, they're using a uniform way of writing things. For example, they would write Jesus Christ. They would give it kind of an abbreviation in Greek, and they would mark above it to indicate, they would like draw a line above it to indicate that this is the holy abbreviation for Jesus Christ. And they would do that with God and Son and Spirit. They had these. And what is amazing about them is we've seen that almost in all of them, it's a uniform system. So somebody must have been communicating about how we're going to copy these things. Because this was a spontaneous development, wouldn't kind of explain it. Just say all of a sudden somebody just did it and everybody else was doing it. It seemed like right from the beginning, there was an agreement to do it. Or at least schools of thought that were saying, this is how we should copy these. And the fact that we find them in almost all of the early manuscripts gives this confidence that they must have been following kind of a methodology. The use of the codex is kind of another thing that shows that there was some thought put into this. They went from scrolls during the time that Jesus was reading the Isaiah scroll and other instances we have in Scripture to all of a sudden adopting the codex in almost all of the manuscripts we have are using codexes. This is not something that just happened in the first century. In fact, people caught on from Christianity the use of the codex later, about 100 years later. For a while, it's only Christians doing this. So again, there's some thought put into this. And last, I put up here paleographers. Those are like people who are like archaeologists of documents. Paleographers note that many of these are written in a documentary hand. Documentary hand goes back to what I was showing you up here. You see this kind of nice, neat language that is done? You see this kind of neatness that's put into this. That gives paleographers a high sense of confidence that the people who are doing it were either paid to do it, they were professionals, or they were people who took it very seriously. That they were not just copying things to get them out as fast as possible, they were actually copying things into these columns, into these very straight type, because they knew the importance of what they're copying. What does that all mean? The question we're answering tonight is just a simple one. How do I know that when I open up the Bible that these words have anything to do with the originals that were written? I think we could have a high confidence in them. I would say very high. Because it seems like it was such a short period of time from the time that these words were spoken, and especially something like the Pauline epistles where they were actually written down and sent, and people started trading them right away, that those words got copied carefully, it appears, and treated with sacredness 
and eventually distributed. And when we look at the fragmentary evidence against the earliest versions we have, people could say with confidence, there's no difference on anything that's substantial, that's important to what we're doing. That's kind of the place where I'm going to leave it tonight, kind of leave it there. Now this material's a little dry. I was talking to my dad today. It was Mother's Day. My parents came over. And my dad was asking me what we were doing in Exodus. And I said, we're doing this series about Scripture. And he says, well, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, it's just kind of about how we got the Scriptures. Like, basically, how do we know that the copies that we have in our hands, translated as they are, copies of copies as they are, like, how do we know that that's anything close to what was originally written? And my dad goes, I've always wanted to know the answer to that. That's always bothered me about Christianity. So I said, oh, great. So maybe I have a chance to actually tell him about it. So I started going, well, one of the ways we know, and he's like, okay, let's go home. He got up and left, you know. <laughs> like, that's actually the issue, I think, for so many of us, is we're comfortable asking the questions. It takes a lot of work to get the answers. And these answers, by the way, that we're giving, like somebody like Jeremy sitting over there would be thinking, like, we're just, like, skimming the surface on the answers. Because people spend their lives studying this stuff. And I agree. We're just skimming the surface. But the point here is not to turn you all into theological or paleographers walking around like Aleph and B and A and P72. Like, that's not the point. But it is to show you that you can go much deeper into every one of these things. You want to know what's in Codex Synacticus? They have a whole website. You can read the whole thing on your own. You want to know what some of these topics are in more depth? Read the books that I suggested. But let us at least be careful to understand that asking the questions is easy. But these are things that we should know the answers to. We should be able to have confidence in our scriptures. Let's pray and close up. Lord, I fear we don't do your word justice enough. We don't marvel at its power. We don't marvel at its ability to change lives. I don't. I take it for granted. I use it as a text to support my notions and ideas. And even, Lord, in this series where we're trying to understand just what it means to have a copy of your word in our hands. Would you give us confidence and faith, Lord, but a burning desire also to learn more about you in your word. And Lord, let us not forget the people in this world who are starving for your word, who don't have access to any of the scriptures. Many of us have so many copies of the scriptures and we hardly pay attention to them and people around the world want them so badly. May we never take for granted that we have access to your word, that we've been blessed with just that, the ability to open up your scriptures and also be in a country, Lord, where it's safe enough to be able to study about them and talk about them and have the luxury to debate about them and even think about topics like this. These are things we take for granted, Lord. May we think more deeply about how wonderful it is just to have your word. Pray this in your name. Amen.